Welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kansas. Peter, howdy. Greetings. And in this episode, we're sizing up the November 5th Boston elections with two very distinguished guests, Yawu Miller of the Bay State Banner and Sue O'Connell of NECN. Sue and Yawu, thanks for being here. Thrilled. Thanks for having us. Let's start off talking about what, for me, is the big question that the election was supposed to answer, which is whether Michelle Wu is going to run for mayor. <laughs> she topped the ticket, 21 percent of the vote. Do you think that for her, she's going to look at those results and say, OK, I've got what it takes to be competitive with Marty Walsh? I think that anybody running, I mean, I, she probably will think that that's enough, but I think anybody who's like sort of looking at it from the outside is going to say, you know, Marty just raised $1.2 million this year. He's not, he doesn't have a race this year. He raised like half a million dollars in thousand dollar contributions. And I think Michelle raised $240,000 this year. So there, you know, he's, it, it's still a, a tremendous hurdle for, for uh, Michelle Wood to overcome at just in fundraising. She, she is like totally branding. I don't know if she is or her supporters are. Everything good that happens, and I'm good by whatever your viewpoint is, but everything that's good, that's progressive, that happens in the city, Michelle Wu has delivered. Right? I mean, it's it's really been this incredible success of branding um, that uh, any opinion that comes through that people say, yes, that's what we should be doing. It's Michelle Wu's choice. I, I actually think that both Marty Walsh and Michelle Wu, this is just totally me spitballing. I think they're waiting to see what happens in the 2020 elections. I'm not, wouldn't at all be surprised if Marty Walsh is waiting to see if Joe Biden gets elected. And if so, does, does Marty Walsh become the head of HUD or something? Or if Elizabeth Warren gets elected, does Marty Walsh run for Senate? Or does Michelle Wu run for Senate? I mean, I think this is a chess game that's happening out between Walsh and Wu, and we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Peter Kansas? Well, Yao makes a very good point, stole my point about <laughs> Mahdi's money. Um, good job, Yao <laughs> It makes for better audio when that happens. <laughs> Sue uh, makes an excellent point about it being a chess game. This is, um, I would say, three-dimensional chess. Um, before the election, I... I I talked to some people in organized labor to see what they thought. And they do think that these are people who would ultimately endorse and back Marty Walsh, I think. But they, 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 before the election, could see him being open to a challenge. They were skeptical if it would work, but they, they didn't think it was crazy. Um, I, I just throw that out there that it's it's not just the political class that's chattering on about this. You, you know, um, people involved in the political side of organized labor um, are pretty good at what they do. You know, I, I right before we came down here, I, I took a look at some numbers. In 2013, um, then-candidate Marty Walsh got 72,514 votes. Last night, Michelle Wu got 41,616 votes. You can see that, you know, that there's, there's a big spread there. Um, I think the strongest thing she has going for her is her branding. Her whole last two years have been very sophisticated. Um, but Adam, as you know, when we talked to the mayor 
you know, about a month or so ago, he's very comfortable with himself in the role of being mayor. And, and so if they do run against each other, uh, it would be a very interesting battle. Before Sue and Yahoo get back in here, Peter, you had a, a theory of sorts as you watched the results come in involving Walsh, maybe trying to put his finger on the scales a little bit last night. Well, I, I have, to the at-large I, I'll tell you, I, I have absolutely no hot evidence to back this up. But watching Bill Forey, the publisher of the Dorchester News, watching Dorchester his, reporter. Dorchester reporter, sorry. Um, uh, watching his Twitter feed, especially the results from different Dorchester precincts, I really noticed that in precincts where Marty Walsh has done well in the past, um, uh, Anissa Asabi George was doing very well too. <laughs> I noticed that too, and and I. So it's not my imagination. <laughs> no, no, it's not your imagination. And I also have talked to at least ten voters, real people, not people involved, you know, in, not in people media, like us, not like yeah. us, who were openly talking about how they were going to bullet their vote last night. Right. Yesterday, they were going to choose instead of at the in the at large race, instead of choosing all four candidates, they were going to choose just one so that that one candidate would get more votes and the other candidates would get fewer. So who were these people bulleting? The for? two that they were bulleting that I spoke to, one was Michael Flaherty. Right. And the other was um, uh, uh, Alejandro St. Gillian. Huh. Oh. So two very, I think. You know, not that Michael Flaherty's the conservative by any means, but that you have two very different points of view. And that that this idea of bulleting, which I know that in Althea Garrison had some some um, some mailing materials that actually was encouraging people to do that. And, you know, this is not something that the average voter understands that, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to vote for four. I'm going to vote for all four. I'm not going to try and get my one candidate ahead by hurting the others and not giving them the vote total. I think that was happening in Dorchester as well. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it's so. legal. I just want to be clear. It's legal. Oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> it, it makes it made perfect sense. It just occurred to me that, um, for, first of all, uh, Asabi George is strong in yep. Dorchester. But I don't think I'd be crazy if thinking that supporters of Marty Walsh, sophisticated ones, would throw a vote her way. By the way, she ran a very aggressive campaign. She had, in the last four weeks, four mailers. I mean, yep. she had so many mailers out that a number of people asked me, my God, is she in trouble? She, you know, had, she had nearly half as many as Michael Flaherty had. I was, I was calling him five card Flaherty. Really? Ah, I, that he, just, I he, blank, he blanketed my house with fly, with uh, with yeah. so many flyers. I thought I was living in South Boston or something. But but um, Anissa and and the mayor though their their natural bases overlap. Like oh, I know that. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I I, and, I recognize and, that. And and this was this being an off year, like you know, no mayor on the ballot, sort of lower turnout, and um, you know, it really did favor. Voters who draw from those areas, from South Boston, from Neponset, from West Roxbury. Um, you know, I haven't looked at last night's data, but, you know, it's going to look like that donut again where, you know, it's like like certain candidates like Aaron Murphy um, and, uh, you know, Flaherty. They're going to be like sort of lighting up the outer periphery of the city. You, you might want to explain the donut. Well, Good point. <laughs> So the neighborhoods that are farthest away from, you know, like the inner city, so to speak, are you know, are are the ones where you know, sort of more conservative white, um, you know, Italian American and Irish American people live. So, 
Um, traditionally, that's been Charlestown. It's been East Boston, parts of Austin, Brighton, and then, you know, around outer Dorchester, like Zappin Hill and the Ponset, right? Yeah. And then West Roxbury and Reedville and Hyde Park that lights up, you know, also like with those can with those candidates. And then, the, you know, the, the, the coalition of sort of black Latino and white progressive um, voters is more in the center of the city, running from South End through Roxbury and sort of out into Rosendale. Jamaica um, Plain. Jamaica Plain, of course, yeah. So um, Ward 19 has been, you know, really, like, become, like, a, a powerhouse of progressive politics. The the progressive white vote is on fire right now from last year. It's, they're still engaged and still uh, still in it, giving Wu, like, a really big bump. And also Mejia and St. Guyen both got, um, you know, a lot of push from that, but it didn't favor, like, white progressive didn't favor one over the other. Um but I'm getting into the weeds here. <laughs> no, this, no, this, this is out. terrific. This um, is the stuff of the election. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, but because turnout was so low, it did it did give Flaherty the the kind of boost that he wouldn't have in a mayoral year. And it also like Wu kind of clipped her 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 wings a little mm -hmm. bit. That's I think she would look a lot stronger next year, um, or I mean, two years from now. Um, I'm not saying against Wall. I mean, against Wall, she'd look stronger, but also against all the other candidates, she would look stronger. Let me ask all three of you, uh, because this is the sort of thing that I never find out about until <laughs> after the fact. Was there evidence of the mayor, besides what you already mentioned, Peter, with those vote totals that made you scratch your head? Was it, there? It, and that's conjecture on yes, my yeah, mind. Yes, noted. You know, well, is I, there any kind of evidence that he was though. trying to boost certain candidates? I, I hadn't I hadn't heard any. I mean, and I also look back at his, you know, his last two endorsements <laughs> did not result. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, at that point the Capuano endorsement, and what was the other endorsement that he made? There was one. Um, I'm trying to remember because this is an area where I love to gratuitously pile on the mayor for yeah. his, his bad luck with endorsements. Well, but, um, Maria Esdell Farrell, she got like a big bump of like all the obscure building trades unions that you've oh, never heard of, go, like yeah. the floor covers, local 503, and the pipe twisters, local 302. Like, <laughs> like building trades, you never, like, you get a bunch of them, and it's like, okay. Somebody made a, you know, phone calls and like who has more suction with the building trades than Marty Walsh, right? Like certainly like, you know, not like Tim McCarthy. So um, like definitely Maria as Del Farrell in District 5 Hyde Park. Um, it seemed like that had the mayor's imprimatur. I've heard um, Aaron Murphy, but I have not looked into those those, um, you know, to, to her, her campaign contributions, because that's the clearest indicator. What about in this contested at large race with Alejandra St. Guillen, who served in the Walsh administration? Right. Right. And, and uh, Julia Mejia, who is the winner as of now by a very, very slim margin. We should talk about what's at stake here generally. But ten votes. Working, was he working on behalf of, uh, of St. Guillen? There's no ind I mean, I saw no indication that okay. any of his people were with St. Guillen. He did endorse her. Now he has he's like in up to that point in this in this electoral cycle, he hadn't he had not endorsed a person of color, and she worked in his administration. Um, my sense is that when she left, the door kind of slammed behind her. But like, had he not endorsed her, it would have looked really bad. Like, you know, had he not endorsed a single person of color, which, you know, has been a weak spot for him politically over the last six years. And had he not endorsed somebody from his own administration, that too would have looked bad. But that having been said, I saw no indication that he gave her any assistance, nor did he give Julia Mejia any assistance. But I did hear the same rumor about like, you know, when Alejandra heard 
like 200 votes, like, like, like she was behind by 200 votes. That came from the mayor's political organization. So people were thinking, like, did he do that to, to like, perhaps to, you know, or did that happen because, you know, somebody wanted her to concede early? Um, I mean, that's all uh, conjecture. Yeah, as, I, as far I, I as think I'm concerned. as someone who's sometimes guilty myself of reading too much into it, I, 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 I don't think so. I, 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 I think... Um, but I, I'm not sure I buy that. But I get yeah. I get your point. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not my point. I'm just I'm just repeating what I heard. Yeah, like, um, yeah, we can I, do the the President Trump. You know, people are saying. People are saying. <laughs> right. We'll see. Right. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Something's if, going on. If Mejia wins, you know, if she's deemed the winner, she won on shoe leather. Yeah. I, I mean, she. she, she banged on doors herself. I mean, I'm in no way knocking the other campaign, but she ran a very old Yeah, I think they both did, actually. I think they were both out in force yesterday of all the at-large candidates knocking on doors in the pouring rain trying to get voters out. And I think that, that that's what comes down to this this tight, tight race. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard so I, um, about an hour ago, I was in Dudley Square where St. Guyenne was giving a press conference. She said her campaign I knocked on... I think we're on, calling it Nubian Square now. <laughs> Yet to be determined. Fifty. She said, she, in Nubian Square, she said Thank she you. knocked on 50,000 doors. Her campaign knocked on 50,000 doors and made 20,000 phone calls. Um, so it's that's... door knocking. That's yeah. That's Still that's their it. claim. Yeah. What is at stake when it comes to who gets that fourth and last at-large seat? Because you've got two Latina women. Uh, the council is going to be one openly gay majority. Thank you, majority uh, people of color, uh, majority women. I think both for the first mm-hmm. time, which is something we can talk about later if we want to. But uh, what differentiates those two candidates besides what Sue just mentioned? Hmm. And um, if you don't know the answer, no, yeah, uh, let know, me point I, out that yeah. I don't know the answer either, uh, which is one of the luxuries of, of queuing up Being the Congo. Host, but yeah. yes. I think St. Guillen, like having worked in sort of like sort of more institutional settings like, you know, Oiste, um, Deval Patrick's office, and then in the mayor's office kind of has like a better understanding, perhaps, of how things work from the inside. And Mejia certainly like uh, like positioned herself as the outsider. Um, her her rhetoric is very much about sort of you know coming from the outside. She you know she'll tell you in a heartbeat like I'm not supposed to be here. Um, she she's the first person in her family to make it through high school, right? right? And which and, is and, uh, you know remarkable. first generation. Or actually, she was born in the Dominican Republic, and uh, um, her mother was undocumented. So um, you know she she would be the first Domin- Dominican American woman in the city council, and Saint Guyen would be the first openly gay and first Venezuelan woman in the city council. So the first um, openly gay either, woman, not the first gay person. Yeah, yeah openly first gay openly woman. gay woman, right? But that's so really would remarkable, be the, actually, isn't it? That there hasn't been an, an out woman. I'm sorry, no, yeah, yeah. I stepped on oh, your no, toes. Just last thing, there's also not been a Latina, like you know. So the, either, both either of them would be the first Latina in office. So which yeah. is also wild, big deal. Yeah, See, I, big deal. I think in many ways. Well, first of all, let, let me give uh, David Bernstein, um, uh, our colleague who has an excellent piece online. People should look it up. David Bernstein points out that you know, yes, on the surface, there's all this change. But if you scra- uh, scratch the surface, you, you, you see that there's a lot of continuity, that in most cases, the people who were elected come from political backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Or, like Michelle Wu, they've trod um, a, a, a well-traveled path of going to a good school and 
working in administration. And Having Elizabeth Warren as a teacher. Teacher and work their way up. <laughs> that seems but, to be a key. By, by the way, he, he's, he's not dissing anyone in this. Right. But I, I think be, because we live in this age of identity, we tend to forget that Italians made this journey once. The Irish made this journey once. Um, one of two Latinas will have made this journey. But these are well traveled paths. And the way a new person gets in is to stress their outsidedness. And I think in some cases, listening to some of these candidates, you know, they're, they're trying to capitalize on, to me, what's grievance. I mean, my God, um, it's not that hard to be listened to in Boston politics. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have an effect. Yeah. That's a very different thing. So, Connell, let's get you back in here. Yeah, so uh, we were talking about openly uh, gay people, lesbians on, on the council, and why, you know, why is it that we haven't had an openly lesbian uh, person on the, on the council? And I, it's just, you know, the gay power play in Boston has, has often been one of behind the scenes and not necessarily yeah. in the front. Anne McGuire was Tom Menino's chief of staff for a very long time, Harry Collings who's a man, who's not a woman, but openly gay, was on the BRA for many years, very close to Tom Menino. Uh, there was a, a group of uh, gay guys who worked in the at City Hall, who used to call themselves the Dead Cats, because one of the older women who worked in City Hall said, at one point in the 1990s, it's so gay around here, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting one, you know. So, um, I mean, I think this is, again, just to, to Peter's point, just a matter of time until someone felt, you know, the city council and I don't know if we'll get to this, to be a city councilor until recently was not that appealing. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like a job that people looked at generally and said, that's where the power is. That's where I want to go. That's what I want to run. You know, I'd rather be attorney general and be openly gay or be, you know, the Senate president and be openly gay than be in the city council. I think it's only recently it's, it's, it hasn't become a de dead-end job. No, and then there was David Scondrus. Yes, who, who was... Who, who very early on, I, I mean, I forget the, the years. 70s, yeah. In, in the 70s. So, you know, um, there's nothing new under the sun. But then again, I'm old and crusty. <laughs> Wait, but hold on for just one second, because Sue, I think, was just suggesting that there is something new under the sun, that the post of city councilor has become desirable in the last few years in a way that it wasn't maybe a decade ago. Yeah, because they've just been endorsing the budget and dealing with constituency issues. And I, I honestly think we shouldn't ignore the fact that Boston 311, which is the number you dial, the app you use, the website you visit for your complaints in the city, whether it's a pothole, an out street light, a fence that's down, those are things you used to call your city councilor about. Right. And now you no longer have to call your city councilor, which I think free because it goes directly to the department that needs to deal with it, which I think has freed up the city councilors to do these these aspirational, inspirational ideas of things that they want to do, like make the MBTA free. Well, here's here, here's a few key distinctions between city council of your and city council next year. Like, first of all, it's majority women. First time ever. Um, Mara Hennigan was just saying when I came on in like 1982, I was the only one that was probably hell for her. Right. I mean, think about it. Um, majority people of color, too. And then like so you look at Liz Breeden out here um, in Austin, Brighton and Kenzie Bach and, uh, you know, either Alejandra or Julia Mejia. And then, um, you know, uh, Ricardo Arroyo. So like five people were coming on. All of them were endorsed by right to the city, Boston, which is pro rent control. 
and Michelle Wu, although in the beginning of this this uh, electoral cycle was kind of like on the fence and said, I don't really support rent control, she does like sort of full-throated. So you've got a majority of people on the council who support rent control for the first time since God, like 1973 when it was instituted first, right? right? So all throughout the 1990s, you had a majority white male council that was anti-rent control. Um, and and also the, the other key issue that people have mentioned to the school committee, if you read the Boston Herald last week, series of scathing articles, 111 um, unanimous votes from the school committee, like just kind of like that many people see that as proof that the school committee is a rubber stamp for the school department and for the mayor's policies. So the majority of the, of the council candidates and many of the incumbents um, say like they would support a change either hybrid, like elected and appointed, or just fully elected. You know, so two key changes, like two challenges to mayoral um, power that, um, you know, that Walsh is going to have to contend with next year. Right. The, the, let, me, let me take issue with one thing you said. The, the, when rent control was unpopular, it's not that white male candidates were opposed to rent control because they were white and male. It was because rent control itself it had fallen out of favor. Um, it, I think it broke down on race lines, though, in in, in the nineties with team unity. Uh, like I, I would say right. I'd say race is uh, a different issue. Yeah, there. But um, I think you're onto something with the schools. And I think, um, first of all, I've got a big question I want to float out there. Remember when there was a, a real backlash against the Boston schools when the um, the new start times mm -hmm. had been, yeah, very well. had yes. been bungled. Yeah, my daughter was in the, the BPS at the time. Now, um, Councillor Asabi George made a big show of stepping in and saying, well, now I'm not saying how we should change the school committee, but maybe we should look at different modes of doing it. Maybe one of someone at this table can tell me something different. What the heck ever happened of that? I got to say, I think she was providing cover for her friend, the mayor, because that cooled things down mm -hmm. considerably. It's going to heat up again, and that's because the Boston schools stink, um, and they stink for a whole variety of reasons, uh, most of which the serious ones are very complicated. But um, uh, I think this is going to be a tough issue for the mayor to deal with. Um, the, the fact that the school committee votes 100% with the mayor all the time is not news. I mean, it's worth pointing out, but that ha began happening under Menino. And I, I think mayors can't help themselves. They can't give their, for whatever reason, they can't give their appointees the freedom mm -hmm. to vote the way they think is best. They, they, they want people to be... Um, bum kissing toadies. I think that the start the start times though what was interesting about that was that Walsh is you know like throughout like his term in office like he's done things that have pissed off like black and Latino parents. This was the first time he took on white parents in West Roxbury, and they took that fight right to him at the Christmas tree lighting in West Roxbury. Right. And yeah. Days later, he, he kind of shifted yeah, back. Yeah, the but, same people who were complaining about Black Lives Matter interrupting the Copley Square Christmas tree lighting were okay about the mayor getting disrupted right. during his trolley tour. From Just the to point that out. From the get-go, they're like, you're not doing this in our schools here in West Roxbury. You know, like, it was a totally different tone. So, yeah. Whether it was a different tone or not, it was, it was political deadly. For the mayor. Yeah. Um, 
it, it was deadly for the mail. What are the other stories or subplots that we should be talking about here? And I want to give you guys a chance to bring up anything that may have caught your attention. I'll give you a nudge if need be. There was something, a prediction, Sue, that you oh, made yes, to me. Oh, yes, I did make a big... Which, I, I wanted to be on record with everyone. So in case it happened, I was right. So I was wrong, and I don't want to bring it up. No, I said... <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Very I, smart. I felt... I felt 60% confident that Althea Garrison was going to get reelected uh, to the city council. And I'll tell you why. I thought because she's an incumbent, right? And uh, it was going to be a low voter turnout race, uh, which usually favors the incumbent. She has been on the ballot every year, some ballot, any ballot, somewhere, every year since the early 1980s, I think. And I also felt that she has served a constituency of constituencies of elders, which is not really been serviced in, in a way on the council. We're all focusing on these big issues and, and progressive things and issues. Trying to impress the millennials. Right. But, you know, elders have some, all elders generally share some of the same concerns. And I think that Althea uh, has been someone who has addressed those issues, whether or not you agree with how she's addressed them or not. So I actually thought that there was a chance, especially since I heard about the bullet <laughs> voting, that there was a chance that she was going to hold on barely, but but she didn't. And if you wanted a socially conservative voice, right, right, yes. she was going to be your pick, yes. right? But, but I, I would say there's something th- – that's understandable reasoning. Yeah, I was but wrong, it, as, as <laughs> you pointed out, the whole 311 phenomenon means that elderly citizens, like citizens who are younger – are no longer really dependent on right. the city councilor. Yep. Um, you you can get directly to directly to city hall services mm-hmm. and well, get soon. and get immediate reaction. That's the other part. I mean, you know, one of the reasons the late uh, city councilor Jimmy Kelly, uh, who served the South End in South Boston, was uh, I think safe to say uh, regularly considered a bigot for good reason would often have gay men voting for him in the South End because he actually was excellent at constituent services. So if you take that away, you're actually left with other issues. I don't want to stick you with only the thing that you predicted and and got wrong. So whether it's now or after Peter and Yahoo weigh in, if there's anything else that jumps out at you. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, (laughs) anything you read about. I mean, you you did mention that the fact that we're going to have the first uh, out woman on the council, which is... If a she big wins deal. If the she, recount. if she, or thank you, if she, if she wins the recount, which is a big F. So uh, Peter and Yahoo and Sue once again. Any something. subplots that, that <laughs> well, emerge that I, I we don't should know watch? If it's that a subplot, but having spoken to many, many, many of the candidates, um, I, I'm amazed that especially at the district level, h- how poorly informed many of these candidates are themselves. And I don't want to mention any names oh, because on. no, 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 they, they've <laughs> no won. No one's listening. Just uh, between us, they, they, you know, they've won. But um, <laughs> you, you know, this isn't. Uh, no one has ever accused the Boston City Council of being the world's greatest deliberative body. Um, you know, there, there's. Uh, uh, a handful of sort of high-profile pistols at the top, and um, life goes on. I mean, yeah, the candidate pool, in, like, is always like it's always like a very wide range of capabilities and people, and wide range of people, levels of understanding of like what this, the distinctions between city and state and federal government yeah. actually are. So at the at the low end, you have people who have no idea, and it makes the debates like. Not really interesting, but more frustrating to listen to. You're like, 
You know, like you're not talking about anything real. You don't like, have jurisdiction there. there. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but like with the people who, what, I mean, what it takes to win in a city council race, though, I mean, it's not a low bar anymore. And it, you know, you need. I mean, as you've seen from, as we've seen in this race, you've got to be like, you know, at least fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. In the at-large race, like pretty much everybody who who uh, who won was over a hundred thousand um, dollars raised. So it takes a very sophisticated operation. And, uh, and, and, you know, the person at the helm of that really has to have some understanding of what this, what the city council does. Um, again, I think, you know, this is going to be the most progressive city council that we've had in, certainly in my, um, you know, my lifespan as a, my 30 year lifespan as a reporter. So, I mean, and it's going to, for the first time, going to be to the left of the mayor. It's going to be very interesting to look at, um, and, uh, and, you know, how they work together um, how they work with the mayor and when they buck the mayor on, on certain issues. You know, when you said that, I found myself thinking, is this the first time that the council is going to be to the left of the mayor? And I don't, I don't have as much deep knowledge as you guys do, but I think you're probably yeah. right. I mean, I found myself thinking of the, uh, you mentioned, what do they call themselves? The Chuck Turner, Felix Team, team Unity. Team Unity. Thank you, Charles Yancey. Right. And, but they were, a, they were a minority. Right. And then, you know, they, they would sometimes have Mara Hennigan or Mike Ross, but they never got more than six votes. So they never had that seven vote majority that it took to move anything forward. And, you know, they were always bumping up against Flaherty um, back then and Peggy Davis Mullen, et cetera. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. now, you know, like Flaherty is like the only one from that era. Um, I think that that like Flaherty and and Nisa, oh, Yoon was a part of that for a while. Yeah, right? yeah, Yoon was part of it as well. Yeah. Sam Yoon. So yeah, Flaherty, Flaherty and Anissa are kind of like you know probably the right flank of the council now. Um, you know, and, and they're not neither one of them is what what many like people in other parts of the country or even other parts of the state would consider. Yeah, they're still screaming like, progressives by about the other fifty state, forty nine yeah. state. Yeah, no, just, go, go the Kansas and they're communists, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, so like within the, within the context of Boston city politics, though, though it's it's pretty it's pretty out there. It's pretty revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Are there any issues that that might? impact in the very near future where you might see the council. I guess we talked about the school committee. That's one possibility, right? Well, one, push one, for a hybrid or appointed body there, or a hybrid or elected body there. One thing that's very, that'll happen very soon is redistricting. Um, and so we've never had a situation where a majority of the people of color are deciding what those districts should look like. So I think that the, that this, you know, the city council itself could, I mean, the, the districts themselves could look very different. Um, for the longest time, you know, black Voters were packed into two districts, in the seven and four, like uh, which is now Campbell and Janey, and you know, as it spread out, and also, but you know, the other the other issue too is that downtown Boston has become a lot more populous. So all these districts that are out in the hinterlands, like you know, District Five and Hyde Park, they have to expand and move north. Um, so it's it's going to look very different. Um, you know, if the if if uh, if it's the same group of councilors. Um, who are making the decision, like, how do we redraw district lines? That's something to keep an eye on. If you guys haven't come up with any other subplots mm, that you want to talk about, let, let's close by just broaching a, a topic that we were talking about before we started recording, which is how you'd handle yourself if you were in this race between Julia Mejia and Alejandra Sinki. And I think I had said something like, you know, if I were uh, Mejia, I would, you know, certainly declare victory myself. Just take it, grab it, try to make it yours, even if it's a little fuzzy. And Sue, you had a different take, right? Yeah, I think I think the rules are different when you're you're running uh, as a progressive. 
right? You know, and I think that this is also the Achilles heel for liberals and progressives that you don't act like the conservatives and you don't act like the winner take all. You know, e- either one of these candidates, when when one of them wins, it's going to be a victory for many underserved constituencies in the city. So it's hard to say that the constituencies that each of them said they're representing will be served worse by the other candidate if the other candidate wins. Okay, they, obviously they each bring their own particular viewpoint and their their agendas and all those things. To, but the city's not going to be worse off pro- if you're a progressive, if regardless of which one gets in, which is, I think, why they're pretty much tied as we, we go into to nighttime now. So if I were the one who came out winning but only by 10 votes and my opponent said, I want to recount, I would join her and say, yes, let's count every vote, let's join together, let's make sure we get an accurate count of everyone who voted, because the other thing that's going to happen is the person who doesn't win is going to be fifth, right? And we know what happens, thank you, Althea Garrison, if someone moves on, that person moves in. And I think just from um, unifying the voting base, I think many of the people who voted for one voted for the other, so it's not like you have these two totally separate camps, I would say, let's join together to get a recount. You've convinced me that I was shallow and hadn't <laughs> thought this through. Peter and Yahoo, do you guys agree with Sue? Well, I just think that um, I certainly don't disagree with her. I mean, y- you want to be gracious in victory and gracious in defeat. I think it's as simple as all that. Grace is not a popular concept these days. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with Peter and Sue that, you know, in, in, Very in, good move. in, 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 in <laughs> an age where we're like at the national level, it's become so poisonous and so divisive. You know, we're in a city and, and like there's there there is very little difference between those two candidates positions and their constituencies and the people who voted for them. Um, it really would um, behove both of them to, you know, like their public facing commentary to be, you know, conciliatory and. Um, if you're the if you're the the ten vote winner and you know you're way less than a tenth of a percentage point ahead, um, there's no way to stop the other person from you're not going to dissuade them from um, from doing a recount. You might as well like in your public facing comments say like yeah I agree let's do a recount let's like you know let's let's get to the bottom of this um, you know what you say at your kitchen table <laughs> yeah, right. is very different <laughs> yeah your inward facing comments can be <laughs> as vicious and brutal as you want I'm totally for victory I mean yeah, there's no doubt about that <laughs> it's an awful awful um, like sort of like you know environment nationally like the, the the level of public discourse it's horrible and we can't have that in Boston wait a second I'm embarrassed about this because I just did a story about this. We touched very briefly on whether Dudley Square is going to stay Dudley Square or Nubian Square. Uh, what's going to happen with that? My colleague, Peter and I's colleague, Soraya Wintersmith, I think went through and found that the wards and precincts the city says it's going to pay close attention to backed the, uh, the proposed name change almost with two-thirds of the vote, um, but it failed citywide. The city has sort of used uh, open-ended language to describe what might happen from here. So what do you predict is, is going to go down with the Walsh administration? Um, I think that that the Walsh administration has to look at the no votes, the yes votes, and as you said, you know, in those 16 precincts, the yes votes outnumber the no votes, and also the blanks. Blanks, that's and, what I was going to say. And consider, consider that this was an extremely low turnout um, race. So um, with all those things, you know, with all those things together... You know, like, what, like, is there a clear mandate for this? I think that um, I think that 
I agree 100% with that. I also think this gives us uh, an opportunity to talk about Nubia. You know, um, one of the things that we're learning uh, about history, which we are taught when we're young, but we don't ever really buy it, is that history is written by the winners, right? And Egypt has completely co-opted many of the cultural um, uh, um, cultural items and history and everything that they've uncovered in the area that was once known as Nubia, Egypt has claimed as their own, not current Egypt. <laughs> ancient Egypt, and then archaeologists go over from Great Britain and look at this, the stuff that they find about Nubia in Africa and then say, that's Egyptian. So even if we never change the name of Dudley Square to, to Nubian Square, I think this gives us an opportunity to relook at the history of Nubia, to relook at the culture and the civilization that existed in Africa that was totally wiped away and uh, attributed to uh, people that were not necessarily of Nubia, and that's the conversation we could be having. Right. I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, well I also think there, there there ought to be a broader conversation about you know um, if we're going to honor. Um, black people with names in squares, it should be a more public conversation about, like, you know, who do we do? Like, let, let's put up a list. Like, you know, how many how many places are named after black men? How many places are named after black women? We've got Melnia Cass. We've got a school with uh, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, Malcolm and then X Boulevard. Malcolm, Malcolm X, X Boulevard. Boulevard. Yeah, let, let's let's come up with a, you know come up with a list of people we'd like to honor and have like a more public discussion of you know like what you know what what are our actual priorities um, for honoring people in Boston? Yeah, for example, New, yeah, Frederick Douglass, the obvious Martin Luther King. Um, Nubia Square is not a very smart idea. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I, th I, I think that, you know, that was a lot of the pushback that I heard from, you know, uh, people in Roxbury was, you know, and also from the Banner's editor, Melvin Miller, um, you know, that, that uh, you know, if you're going to name it. Um, and, you know, Byron Rushing actually said, like, you know, th th this idea that, that, like, people will attribute, listening to this podcast will attribute to me. But um, he said, like, it's got to be a public discussion about, like, you know, who do we, who, who do we really want to honor? Um, so, you know, a lot of people who've been thinking about this stuff for a long period, you know, a long time sort of got, um, you know, it's been, been eclipsed by this Nubian push, but I think it, it could open a broader conversation, um, about, you know, how, how do we, how do we look at, uh, Boston's history and Roxbury's history? And on a local level, Byron Rushing Square. Yeah, why not? Could be in, no, no, I mean, no, yeah, yeah, I'm being a little cute in saying that, but th there are also local people. Right. who we could consider. Although Nubian we, Notions was a hell of a well, record that, store, so... That's a different <laughs> right thing. No, Dudley no, that, 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 that is true. I mean, um, there's a lot of cultural resonance to yep. that, but I don't think that's what We're not honoring a record store, that wasn't the point. <laughs> you know, I think that is going to do it okay, for another see. installment of The Scrum. Sue O'Connell of NECN, Yawu Miller of the Bay State Banner, thank you for coming here to talk with me and Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was a great conversation. I'm going to go count some votes. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already, and rate us if you can. Be honest, by the way. We're not looking for cheap praise. <laughs> also, feel free to bend our ears on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. Yawu and Sue, I always uh, get an autocomplete if I try to contact one of you. So what are your handles on Twitter? I believe I'm at Sue NBC Boston. I'm at Yawu Miller.
All right. There you have it. By the way, you can also get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. We get crucial production help from him and our colleagues, Andrew Maswa, Dave Goodman, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.